We all have questions. Questions about culture, relationships, science, people, death, life, religion, politics, ethics, and God. And where do we go with these questions? Our smartphones. But what about the questions our devices just don't know the answers to? Am I a good person? Bringing up your search history. Wait, 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 no, no, no. What does Eucharist mean? Euchre is a common card game from... No, 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 no. What does Eucharist mean? Bob Euchre is an actor and former Major League Baseball player. Where do babies come from? You should ask your mom that. Don't seek answers from your device. Bring your questions here. And yes, you can ask that. Hello, friends. I want to welcome you across the network, those of you joining us from the Bettendorf campus, the men at Kiwani, and those joining us online. My name is Beth, and I have the honor and privilege of getting to serve as part of the teaching team here at Heritage. And I want to let you know that the teaching team received many, many, many questions from our church family in preparation for this Can I Ask That series. And I just want to let you know that most of them were incredibly difficult questions. So thank you for that. Um, but really, we received these questions, and I want you to know that we sat with them and we prayed about them. And we've been sitting with the questions and understanding and feeling the pain and anger and confusion that many in our church family are feeling as they struggle with some of the deep mysteries of God. But before we get to the heavy lifting in our Can I Ask That Week 2 part today that we're going to interact with, I want to recap where Pastor Sean took us last week. We talked about a few light topics then as well. We talked about heaven and hell and eternal security and salvation. Pastor Sean used that infinite rope to illustrate that the life that we live in now is just the very smallest part of that rope. And that actually the vast majority of that rope, and he kind of gathered it up in his hands, is what represents eternity. I encourage you to watch that sermon, and you can do that by going to heritageqc.com and clicking on the Watch Series tab. But we're going to be picking up this concept that we talked about last week again this week, that the point of this life is actually to prepare for the next life. There were a few later questions in our hundreds of questions that we got from you all, and I thought we could maybe tackle just a few of those by way of warm-up. We'll kind of ease into the deepness and vastness that we're going to tackle today. So one of the questions was, so what's up with all the clapping in our worship gatherings? There were questions about what happens when we gather, and even more specifically, why do we clap at the end of the song? I'm totally confused about what's happening in that moment. So I thought we'd talk about that. So the best, that I can, uh, best way that I can answer the question about what's up with all the clapping, when we're singing, we as a congregation are actually trying to get in sync 
and clap together from the beginning of a song to the end of the song. And by my estimation, we succeed in that about 1% of the time. And so that's what's up with all the clapping. We are desperately trying to make a joyful noise unto the Lord as we sing. But the clapping at the end, let's talk about that. We have an awesome worship team, but when we clap at the end of a song, we're not clapping for them. We are clapping in celebration and honor and praise of our King of Kings and our Lord of Lords who we gather to worship. And that's why we clap. And if that makes you uncomfortable, don't feel any pressure to clap. But if that excites you and now you understand why we clap, I encourage you to join us in that clapping. And you can even join me in hooting and hollering, which I sometimes do at the end of a song. All right, so now that we have that out of the way, let's get to some of the heavier questions that you presented. Today we're going to tackle the questions that get to the problem of suffering and pain and evil in the world. Questions like, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Why does evil exist? Is God really good? Why does God allow children to suffer? Why does God intervene in some circumstances and not in others? God promises to protect us, so why does He so often not come through. And I think the best way to lean into these questions is to start at the beginning. You see, in the beginning, God created. He created the heaven and the earth and the moon and the stars and the sun and the seas and the land and the animals that occupy all of that space. And Genesis 1:31 tells us that God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And this included mankind, it included Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were not created with the knowledge of good and evil. They only knew what was good. They walked with God in the garden. They had fellowship with Him. And so we know that they were untainted by evil at this point because God's holiness cannot be in fellowship with evil. Satan appeared in the form of a serpent, and he started a conversation with Eve. He deceived Eve. He got Eve to doubt God's goodness and his character, and he even convinced Eve that God had lied to her. He said, surely you will not die if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For more on this story, you can read about it in Genesis 3, but we know Scripture goes on to record that not only did Eve eat of the tree, but she also got Adam to eat of the tree. And it was at that point that they realized they were naked, they became ashamed and fearful, and they hid from God. And as a result, the ground became cursed. Pain and suffering became a reality of living in this world. Eve would now have pain in childbirth, and Adam would have to fight the ground to provide for his family. And so suffering is a part of life. This is your first fill-in if you're following along in your note guide. None of us will escape suffering in this life. Sin and suffering entered the world through humanity's choice to embrace a lie that God was not good, that He was selfish, and that He was just trying to control man. 
God created mankind from the very beginning with the capacity to choose. And so today even, we choose. We choose life or death, good or evil. These choices we all make and have made for centuries not only impact us and the lives that come after us, but they impact the people around us. This capacity to choose is what leads to the possibility of suffering. And yet somehow, when suffering comes our way, it still surprises us. Tim Keller observed this about American culture. He said, we are the first culture to be surprised by suffering. And having lived in another culture and traveled the world and seen many, many other cultures, I think this bears out to be true. And I'm not sure what that phenomena is, but I think part of it in America is our, is our ability to control so many things and to insulate ourselves and often even worshiping the gods of comfort and safety and security. It allows us to get insulated from suffering, and yet when suffering breaks in, and I assure you it will, it surprises us, it rocks us to our very core. I have a dear friend and brother in Christ in Sierra Leone. His name is Reverend Moses Frederick Kanu. And he illustrates for me what suffering uh, looks like and enduring it in a way that honors God. His story is sort of a modern day Job story. You see, over 20 years ago when Moses graduated from college and he went off and he got his master's in gender studies, he planned to work for the government and be involved in social services and advocating for women and children. But then he realized that God had a call in his life and was calling him into ministry. And so he left his job and he enrolled in theological training at a Bible college. And in the year 2000, in his very first year of schooling, his mother and his one-year-old daughter were both tragically killed. And within another year after that, his wife was killed in a car accident and he was left alone to care for his three-year-old daughter. Now I remember him telling me that story and he told it in a way with such, with such gentleness and no anger. And so I asked him, Moses, how did you feel in that? You just left all that you knew to, ser to serve God and this was God's response to you. And he was so anchored in his relationship with God that he said, how could I be mad at the very one that I would need? And so Moses went on in life and he ended up getting married again and, and God did end up using Moses even as a pastor to empower women and girls and to fight for child rights and to end child exploitation in Sierra Leone. And he did this at risk of death. I was with him just last summer and he had received some death threats for the work that he was involved in. And I asked him again, how are you coping with that, Moses? And he said, my God will protect me or he'll take me home. And he didn't say it in a trivial way. He just said it in a really trusting way. 
That summer when I was in Sierra Leone, the national church was deciding who they wanted to lead them in the next season, and Moses was one of the candidates. But Moses had put before the church some very hard things that he wanted the church to tackle. And so the church ended up deciding to go another direction, and the rejection and the disappointment of that was, was hard to witness. And so I tried to encourage Moses in that moment as he processed what did God have for me next. And he was coming to a place of peace with it, and I returned home. And I was home just a few short weeks, and I got an email from him that said urgent in the subject line. And so I opened it up, and inside I read these incredible words. He let me know that on July 5th, his 12-year-old son had gone home to be with Jesus. Mark actually had undiagnosed juvenile diabetes. And so he had lapsed into a coma three days before and never recovered, and God had taken him home. It was Moses' only son. He was devastated. We talked back and forth. But he quickly came to a place of calibration again, that he could trust God, that God was still good. And in the fall. He sent me another email to let me know that God had seen fit to bless he and his wife with another child, and his wife had become pregnant. And so July 1st, 2018, Fatanda was born, and her name means to laugh again. And he assured me that they have done that, that God has restored laughter to their souls. You know, many of our responses to suffering assume that God is the cause of that suffering. Our anger, disappointment, confusion with God often impede our ability to exercise the very faith that would sustain us. Many of us have a need to blame someone, and that someone often ends up being God. Paul knew something about suffering. Paul's the one, besides Jesus in the New Testament, he's a man of suffering. It talks about how he was shipwrecked and beaten and abandoned and starved and on and on and imprisoned, the list goes, of Paul's suffering. And so Romans 8, Paul is writing and he tells us about the role that suffering can have in our lives. We're going to pick it up in verse 14. You have verse 17 in your note guide, but if you're following along in your device or in Scripture, we're going to start in verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit that you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit that you received has brought about your adoption to sonship and daughtership. And by Him we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we will share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, for creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Let's skip to verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. 
Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eager, eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, then we wait for it patiently. These first few verses are foundational. It clearly establishes our identity as children of God, that He is our Abba, our Daddy, our good, good Father, and we are His children. And so that means that we do not live in fear of anything, including suffering. How do we know that this is true? Holy Spirit in us, which we receive inside of us when we accept Jesus as our Savior and Lord, Holy Spirit is deposited inside of us and our, the Holy Spirit tells us this truth. We are heirs if we will have courage to share in Christ's suffering. And this, my friends, points us to the cross. In verse 18, Paul reminds us that the sufferings that we encounter in this present world pale in comparison to the glory we will experience in eternity. Our hope is not in this life. Our hope is rooted in the next. Not only do we wait with anticipation for what our hearts long for, for what our hearts were actually created for, but creation joins us in waiting for its liberation, to be returned to the good, the very good, for which it was actually created. One of the mysteries of life is that we still experience the joy of life, but that it is often brought forth in pain. And I love the imagery in Romans 8 that talks about childbirth. As I was studying and spending time with this concept of suffering, I came across this, this concept called creative pain. That pain that produces something beautiful, something that's deemed to be worthwhile, something that is creative at the end of it is somehow more worthwhile and you can sustain, be sustained in it in a totally different way than pointless suffering. And it actually equated like childbirth pain and kidney stone pain. One is creative pain, childbirth, because there's a baby at the end of it, and the kidney stone pain is just, thank God that's over with. There's nothing to be proud of at the end of it except the kidney stone is gone. I remember being eight months pregnant with my second child, Daniel, and um, it took us three years to get to that point because the first experience in childbirth was so horrendous. And I remember looking around and thinking, how on earth do any women ever have more than one child? I will not be doing this again. There's no way. And then over time, I felt guilty, like, oh, an only child, really? Maybe we should have another child. We'll see, Lord. Uh, and so we got pregnant, and then there I am in my eighth month, and I remember having a complete meltdown. Because the fear of suffering and what might be that it might be as bad as it was the first time just totally undid me. And I remember Sean very lovingly, very rationally sitting me down and explaining to me why there was no other way forward except to go through childbirth and have the baby on the other end. <laughs> and Daniel was totally worth it. But it's got me thinking. 
what if we viewed our pain and suffering as having the possibility of being creative and producing something worthwhile? And I think we need to ask ourselves this question, what is suffering producing in me? Is it producing Christ-likeness, holiness? Is it producing the fruit of the Spirit? Am I more gentle and peaceful and patient? Do I have more self-control because of the suffering that's happening in me? My friends, that's the journey of discipleship. Growing up into Christ is all about becoming more like Him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about it this way. He says, discipleship is being bound to the suffering Christ. The cross is not random suffering, it is necessary suffering. You see, it's the suffering of Christ that actually gives us hope. It's the suffering of Christ that was required for the power of the resurrection to be displayed in this world so that we would have hope, so that we would know the suffering that we experience in this life is not all that there is, it is preparing us for the next. It is sharing in the suffering of Christ that binds us to the cross. Let's be honest. Suffering is the most difficult trial our faith can face. And it comes to us in different ways. Sometimes it's something that's been done to us. Sometimes it's something that we ourselves have chosen. It can be emotional, mental, physical, spiritual. It can come through loss and pain and hardship and illness and loneliness and grief and calamity and natural disaster. Suffering comes to all of us. One of the crazy things about suffering is that it's subjective. And it's hard to measure. And it's often not visible. I remember about six years ago being in the doctor's office and we were in the throes of Sean's mom's battle with cancer and I'd been a primary caregiver for her for about 12 years at that point. And I remember sitting in the doctor's office and having the doctor come in and tell me that I also had cancer. And I don't know about you, but you know, I hear that C word and immediately your mind goes to a worst case scenario. And if you're already living through one, it's really hard not to be right in that space. And your whole world changes in a moment. And things that were important five minutes before are no longer important. And I remember walking out from that and I needed to stop at the grocery store on the way home and I could hardly even remember what I was supposed to get. I remember looking around at all these people and they had no idea what just 30 minutes before had happened to me and what, what suffering had started in my mind and in my heart. It's a good reminder for us that suffering is often not visible. That what is suffering for one person may not feel like suffering to another, it's relative. Suffering is, it cannot be reasoned out of, it cannot be rushed. There is no magic wand. Finding courage in the shadow of the cross is the only way that we can endure the suffering that we will encounter in this life. First Peter 2 lays out Christ's example in suffering for us. 
And I want to call our attention to it by way of encouragement for all of us. 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 24. For God has called you to do good, even if it means suffering just as Christ suffered for you. He is our example. And you, we must follow in his steps. He never sinned nor deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sin in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. So then how do we approach pain and suffering in this life? We lift up our eyes to Christ. Our temptation, though, is to run from it, to get angry about it and reject the very one who could sustain us in it. Everything, my friends, that happens to us passes through his hands. We talked about this this summer as we walked through our psalm series. God is omniscient, omniscient. he knows everything. He's omnipotent, he's all-powerful. He's omnipresent, he's everywhere. And God either orchestrates or allows the suffering that we encounter in life. And this truth elicits a response in all of us. It either gives us courage and comforts us, or it makes us mad and causes us, us to retreat from him. In my 20s, I was a victim of a violent crime, and I got totally stuck in this vortex of suffering because I could not wrap my mind around how a God who could see that, who could have intervened and didn't intervene, could let that happen. And I felt in my heart that it was some sort of judgment on me that maybe I wasn't worth it for him to actually swoop down and do what he could have done. And it took me years to lay that down at the foot of the cross and understand that God who loves us so much did not even spare his own son. So why would I think that I should be spared suffering? You see, I talk about this as a fellow sojourner, no expert in it, just somebody who's encountered suffering in life and have found that the only way to arrive at a place of peace and healing with it is to run to him, to run to him, to run to him. And so we have to ask ourselves, can our faith bear up under the pain of life and still trust God? Do we trust him? Or is there a caveat? Is there a pause? Is there a, God, I trust you with all this, but. And so for a lot of us, it's, God, I trust you, but, but not my kids. I can't totally trust you with my kids because if something would happen to my kids, that would undo me. Or for others of us, it's our spouse. For some of us, it's our health. Our job, we're like, God, I trust you with my job. Do whatever you want with that thing, but, but don't touch my health. Do we trust him? 
If we don't settle some things in our heart, it makes this journey of trust really difficult. And so settling even now that God is good, that He is love, that He is for you, and if God is for you, who can be against you? If we don't know why we trust Him, we will always be fighting for control and understanding in life. You see, suffering invites us to place our hurts in larger hands. Hands far bigger and more capable than ours. But how? Now what? How do we actually do that? 2 Corinthians 4, 7 gives us this beautiful imagery of what our lives are like in this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, we now have this light shining in our hearts. The light is the light of Christ. But we ourselves, we are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure inside of it. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. My friends, life breaks all of us. And so if you looked at your life like a fragile clay jar, the reality is at some point you will be walking around with pieces. And you will either be trying to gather up those pieces and go through life and keep track of them, or you'll walk around with them and eventually, because they have sharp edges, you'll hurt yourself. Or worse, you might hurt someone else. And so the question is, what do we do with this? What do we do with this brokenness? How does our suffering have meaning? How does our pain and suffering become meaningful, become productive, become beautiful, become something creative? A few years ago, I came across this ancient Japanese art called Kintsugi. Kintsugi was found in the 15th century in Japan. It means golden joinery, the art of precious scars. It stems from the belief that nothing is ever truly broken. So the craftsman takes the pieces and they use the glue that has gold dust all through it. And they fit the pieces that normally would have just been thrown away together. And they make something beautiful, something unique. This art treats breakage and repair as part of the story of an object, rather than something to hide or discard. The gold highlights and enhances the breaks, and it actually becomes the strongest piece of the object. Every piece has the possibility of its own story as it becomes a beautiful, unique piece of art. What can Kintsugi teach us about what's possible in our life? Suffering breaks all of us at some point in life, often more than once. We shouldn't discard broken pieces. We might hurt ourselves if we walk around with our pieces too long. 
My friends, we should surrender our pieces to the master craftsman to be put back together. We believe that there is the possibility of becoming stronger, that our scars might actually become the strongest piece of what God is doing in each one of us. And this is my favorite. We can proudly display our scars to others and point people to the master craftsman who has restored us. As I look at my own journey in life, as hard as some of the breaking has been, as difficult as it's been, I look at the scars and I wouldn't trade them for anything because it's his strength made perfect in my weakness. Sorrow may come for a day, but joy comes in the morning. Second Corinthians four verses 16 through 18 encourages us in this way. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us in us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what we see. We fix our eyes not on the suffering in front of us, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Suffering pushes us into the deep mystery of God. In our suffering, we are more desperate for him. We need him. We want to see him and hear him. We need him to show up for us. This need and desperation, I think, sometimes scares us. And it causes us to revert to wanting to control our suffering, but we can't do it. And when we try to control our suffering, we spiral away from the one who would hold us together. You know, a common thing that people say to each other in the face of suffering is, well, God won't give you more than you can bear. And I want to let you know that that verse is actually taken out of context. And so it really has to do with temptation and not suffering. And so can we just agree that we're not going to say that to each other anymore in that way? Because I don't know about you, but I have often found that God does give me more than I can bear. That's part of the point. He gives me more than I can bear, more than I can handle so that I run to him, so that I stay dependent on him, so that my faith and my trust and my confidence in him grows. We cannot put our own broken pieces back together. It's only when we surrender to the master craftsman that we can experience a new kind of wholeness, one that embraces our scars and points people to the life of Jesus at work in our bodies. His work that renews and restores and redeems all things. I believe that some of us in this space, we need to respond to the invitation to place our suffering in larger hands. Hands that want to repair us and restore us and make something beautiful. We're going to head into a time of prayer and worship. And as we do that, I think that some of us 
we need to come to the cross. And we need to come to the cross and look at it not just a place, as a place of suffering, but also as an empty cross, a cross that screams of the victory that we can have because of Jesus. And so I'm going to pray for us. Our team's going to come out and lead us in worship. And then here at Rock Island, I'm going to go over and hold space for you at the cross because I know it's sometimes hard to be the first. And I invite you to just come forward and spend time with God in prayer. Lay down your suffering. I long for us to be a church that is free from the burden of suffering. There was so much pain in so many of the questions, and so many of us are struggling in a place of distance and fear and anger with God. And so I want to invite you. Here at Bettendorf, your campus pastor is going to hold space for you at the cross there to just come forward as we worship and just lay your suffering down to the one who wants to redeem it and restore it and renew it and make it beautiful. Let's pray together. Father, you are our good, good Father. And we proclaim this to be true. Father, we affirm that we trust you, even if we find ourselves in a place of pain and suffering. Jesus, we're grateful for your example, that you know the pain and suffering that we encounter in this life because you experienced it and you remain faithful and obedient, obedient to even death on a cross. Give us courage to walk in your way, O oh Lord. Holy Spirit, thank you that it is your presence in us that gives us the power, the courage, the ability to experience the resurrecting power of Jesus at work in our lives. Spirit, I pray that you would work mightily in your people gathered here at Bettendorf, in Kiwani, online. May you set people free, for we are your children. And we love you. It's in the strong name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.